Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We've all become more vulnerable to the problem of addiction because we live in a drugified world in which even healthy behaviors like learning or watching the news or reading or eating or connecting with other humans has become drugified in a way that makes it ripe for the problem of addiction. We're now living in a time when all of us on some level, if we're being honest with ourselves, can identify with this problem. Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast, a show that explores the mind, soul, science and health as we speak with world-leading experts each week. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author, entrepreneur and happiness researcher. Life is not straightforward, so join me as we navigate being human together and become what I like to call flexible thinkers. I believe that curiosity and education is the route for more happiness, love, connectedness, and the doorway to unlocking your unlimited potential. I hope you join me on the journey. On today's podcast, we have one of the most important neuroscientists in the world who is researching and supporting the addiction crisis we as humans find ourselves in. I'm interviewing Dr. Anna Lemke, best-selling author of Drug Dealer MD and most recently Dopamine Nation. She's on a mission to change the way we understand addiction and the neuroscience behind addictive habits. Dr. Anna is the Medical Director of Addiction Medicine at Stanford University and Chief of the Stanford's Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. You may have watched her in Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, where she talks about our addiction to social media. You may have read her books, or you may have listened to her on one of the many interviews that she has given. In today's episode, we are going to be mainly diving in to Dr. Anna's latest book, Dopamine Nation and speaking more generally about the addictions that are so present in society and often go very much unnoticed, like sugar addiction and, of course, tech addiction, which I am so guilty of. What's your favorite quote that you tend to often and why? There's a quote by a Christian theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr, which goes something like this. Evil is not done by evil people per se, but rather by good people who do not know themselves and who do not probe deeply. Gosh, I mean, that speaks to where the world is right now so profoundly. Why did you choose that quote? Well, that's a quote that I found very helpful as I sought to understand the current North American opioid epidemic, which was sparked largely by well-intentioned doctors trying to alleviate patients in pain and ultimately turned into the tragedy that we see today. But I also, as a descendant of German immigrants, have long puzzled over how it is that good people individually and collectively can do evil things. Um, and so that's been sort of an enduring theme because of, I guess, my inherited guilt, wanting to think about the ways in which, again, 
we hurt other people, um, even though that wasn't our intention. What is a life lesson you've been reminded of recently? Well, um, I guess along the same themes, this has been a, a difficult time, obviously, in the world, but I'm on the faculty here at Stanford, and we just lost one of our undergraduate students to suicide. And so I am reminded um, of the importance of just being empathic and listening and sort of deeply trying to be present for people in their suffering. So sorry to hear about that. And um, yeah, it's um, not a common reminder we get about compassion and empathy as we're all charging forward to, you know, get our goals. Yeah. And I guess this kind of leads into how do you understand the soul? Mm, Okay. So I guess I understand the soul as that permeable membrane between our inner lives and our outward attachments to the universe and something greater than ourselves. Well, I'd love to start by asking you what led you to, first of all, write Drug Dealer MD, and then what led you to write the second book? Because obviously in the same genre, but slightly different. Yeah. Well, Drug Dealer MD is really about my efforts to understand what caused the North American opioid epidemic, which began with a fourfold increase in prescribing between the late 1990s and about 2012 prescribing opioids to treat minor and chronic pain conditions outside of evidence to support that use. And that has now led to several generations of Americans uh, addicted to opioids, their children addicted to opioids, and many of these individuals dying from opioids. The biggest killer now is fentanyl, um, obtained illicitly on the streets. Uh, Opioid prescribing by doctors has gone down, but drug dealer MD is really an attempt to understand from inside medicine uh, what what led to that phenomenon. Dopamine Nation um, is more of a, both a neuroscientific and a philosophical look at uh, the growing tendency, especially in rich nations, that we as humans have to constantly distract and titillate ourselves and the growing opportunities to do so. Um, we are now surrounded by an almost infinite supply of feel-good drugs and behaviors. And we are actively availing ourselves of those behaviors and those drugs, I think, to uh, not just to the detriment of you know, our individual lives, but to the detriment of society as well. And I do think that this is what explains the growing rates of anxiety, depression, suicide, and general despair that we're seeing across the world. So often we invoke things like trauma as an explanation or socioeconomic disparities, and certainly those factors play a role. But but I really think that the biggest factor is the way that we're constantly inundating our reward pathways with these highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors, which is actually changing our neurochemistry. I found the book absolutely fascinating. And before I kind of really center on that, I've recently just started watching Dope Sick. Have you seen it? I've seen parts of it, yes. And what were your thoughts? And for anyone who's listening, it's on Disney Plus. It's a dramatized series about what Dr. Anna much more scientifically covers in Drug Dealer MD. But what were your thoughts on it in terms of like, did you find that 
it was quite on point or did you having researched so much into it did you see a little bit of like disparity between it being entertainment no I mean I think it's right on target it's based on a book called dope sick by journalist Beth Macy I was interviewed for the book and I think it's a fantastic uh, book that details both the individual real life experiences of individuals in the Eastern United States, places like Virginia and West Virginia, who got addicted to opioids through a doctor's prescription and then went on to get addicted to heroin and illicit fentanyl, um, as well as you know describing the role that Purdue Pharma and others in the pharmaceutical industry played in um, misrepresenting the science and their, thereby convincing prescribers that more opioid prescribing was, uh, in fact, evidence-based um, and that they could do it without fear of their patients getting addicted, which of course uh, is completely erroneous um, and is something that now most medical doctors recognize. But there were a couple decades in there where uh, doctors were truly um, duped into thinking that uh, they could uh, prescribe opioids at very high doses for very long duration and somehow their patients would be immune to things like addiction and overdose death because they were patients and they had pain. What I loved about your shift from writing that book and Dopamine Nation is in your second book, you totally changed the notion of what an addict looks like, sounds like, feels like, and that came across so clearly. Why was it so important to you, for example, opening up the book, talking about a sex addict, for example, why was it important to you to showcase all these different characters that every listener could relate to in different ways and normalize addiction as much as you do? Well, I really wanted to illustrate the ways in which we've all become more vulnerable to the problem of addiction because we live in a drugified world in which even healthy behaviors like uh, learning or watching the news or reading or eating or connecting with other humans has become drugified in a way that makes it ripe for the problem of addiction. And I also wanted to make it very clear that the ancient neurobiological wiring that has us approaching pleasure and avoiding pain, which is conserved across species and millions of years of evolution, is the same in all of us making us all potentially vulnerable to the problem of compulsive overconsumption um, so that addiction would no longer seem like this thing that other people experience and that we have no kinship with. Because I think we're now living in a time when all of us on some level, if we're being honest with ourselves, can identify with problems related to compulsive overconsumption, even if it's only with our smartphone. And I really shouldn't say only with, because actually tech addiction is is real and potentially devastating. But in ways large and small, I think we all can now identify with this problem. Very much so. I mean, for me, what came up time and time again is this addiction to sugar that after reading your book, I kind of sat there for days going, oh my gosh, I can't believe that this is everywhere I look and yet so often disconnected from what we see as addiction. What are the greatest myths do you find you're constantly re-clarifying and re-educating about and around addiction? The first and probably greatest myth is that people with addiction are just looking to feel good and get high. And the reason that that's probably the greatest myth is because what happens in the brain once people become addicted is that they 
can't experience pleasure anymore. They lose the ability to get high. The brain changes such that they fall into this pattern where they are compelled to use not to feel good, but just to stop feeling bad and feel normal. So I think that's really important because there's this sense that that the addict is selfish. And indeed, the behaviors are selfish. I mean, let me just emphasize, it's probably the quintessential antisocial uh, mental health disorder. But it's a disorder and it arises from changes to the brain that result from repeated exposure to highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors that we're all vulnerable to. And once we get into the cycle of the addicted brain, it's very, very difficult to get out. And because our entire evolution has conspired to have us approach pleasure and avoid pain, and the state of being addicted is the perpetual loop of trying to get out of a terrible pain. The second major myth is this idea that once people are addicted, they'll never get better. There are millions of people all over the world who have struggled with severe addictions who are now living in recovery. And those individuals I actually hold up as modern day prophets for the rest of us, because if those people can figure it out and needed to figure it out in order to actually survive their disease, then surely they have wisdom to share with the rest of us. And so that's the second myth, this idea that it's kind of a hopeless case. I've seen people in mid and even late life with very, very severe addictions to hardcore drugs get into recovery and blossom and find the joys of recovery, you know, when everybody had sort of given up on them, including uh, they had given up somewhat on themselves. What I particularly loved about this book is the fact that this is a strong word, so I don't actually really mean what I'm about to say, but I hopefully you'll get the gist. It kind of contradicts a trend in personal development whereby everyone tries to find the reason for their behavior and they start to play the blame game. And even though research suggests that our memories are deeply unreliable, we will still try to almost form a memory in order to explain what we're going through and actually you explain why this is not the case very balanced individuals or people who assume that they're balanced can fall into addiction. Would you mind sharing a bit more about this? Yeah. So this gets to kind of like, what are the risk factors for becoming addicted? And those risk factors, I can be grouped broadly into nature, nurture, and neighborhood. It is true that there are genetic risk factors that we're born with, making some people more vulnerable to the problem of addiction than others. It's true that co-occurring a mental illness um, you know, increases the risk of addiction. I want all those together in nature. Then you've got nurture, that is to say how you were raised. And it's very clear that severe childhood trauma of all sort increases the risk of addiction, as well as parents who explicitly and implicitly condone substance use or addictive behaviors as a coping strategy. Then we've got neighborhood, which gets to the socio-environmental context. Unemployment is a risk factor for addiction. Poverty is a risk factor for addiction. But what my book, Dopamine Nation, emphasizes, which is often forgotten, is the risk factor of simple access. If you live in a neighborhood where drugs are sold on the street corner, you're more likely to use them. You're more likely to get addicted to them. And even if you have none of those other risk factors, none of the nature risk factors, none of the nurture risk factors, you can have the best parents in the world, the best education, the best childhood, the best spouse, the best kids, and you can still get severely addicted because we're living in a world where we're constantly being tempted and titillated to ingest these technologically 
highly potent reinforcing drugs and behaviors. And the reason it's important to conceptualize and acknowledge that addiction can be a primary progressive disease all on its own, which was which does not require any other explanation besides exposure to the drug itself, is because unfortunately what I see happening in mental health often is that people keep looking for the reason they're addicted. What's the reason I compulsively overconsume this drug? If only I could find the reason then I would stop. Well, two things are wrong with that. Number one, sometimes there's no reason at all. And to go digging for a reason is to, in some cases, make up trauma that doesn't exist. And number two, even if there is a reason, whatever your gateway is into using drugs and getting addicted to drugs, finding the reason isn't necessarily going to make you stop, right? It's not like you know, you suddenly have insight onto why you use and then you can stop using is one of my patients said. sometimes insight is the booby prize. And that's absolutely right. The insight that needs to come is the realization that the drug itself creates this self-perpetuating cycle that fuels addiction, even in the absence of any other reason. Now, does that mean that I don't think we should look at our lives? No, of course, we should look at our lives do, do I, does it mean I don't believe that trauma plays a role? No, of course, trauma plays a role. We need to look at the trauma. We need to process the trauma. But if you get stuck circling around that, hoping that that will be some kind of magic cure for addictive behaviors, you're not going to make progress. Because the truth of the matter is, if you wait until you figure out why you use to stop using, you're probably not going to get there. What's necessary is behavioral interventions, i.e., doing the different behaviors, even if you don't understand why, beyond the disease and the neuroscience itself, you're doing those behaviors in the first place. Before we return to more wisdom, I have a little gift for you. I've partnered on this episode with a product I use every day, AG1 by Athletic Greens. I started taking AG1 because in just one scoop, you are absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. It's definitely very green, but with a squeeze of lemon or in a smoothie, it's perfect. I've noticed my energy levels rising and I feel much clearer mentally. It's a small micro habit with big benefits. So if you'd like to try it too, then excitingly, Athletic Greens are going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash not perfect. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash not perfect to upgrade your health and pick up the ultimate daily immune-boosting energy-upgrading scoop. How does the brain become addicted? What are the stages? And are there any, I guess, signs that we can become aware of moving forward that could possibly alert us to an addictive behavior forming? Or is it so quick and unconscious in a way that just stay away from things altogether? Yes and yes. It's it's quick and happens outside of conscious awareness um, and happens to even psychiatrists who treat addiction like myself, um, as I talk about in the book. The definition of addiction is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and others. Uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders 
bases the diagnosis of addiction not on quantity or frequency, but. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Rather on mental and behavioral changes that can best be captured by the four C's. Control, meaning out of control use. Compulsive use, meaning a lot of mental real estate occupied with using and a level of automaticity in terms of initiating the use, like I didn't mean to start using today, but then I did. Craving, which means intrusive thoughts of wanting to use, and also physiologic manifestations, including sweating, abdominal pain. And then finally, consequences, especially continued use despite consequences, which is really the sine qua non of addiction, this idea that even when people then recognize they have a problem and want to stop, they have difficulty doing so. There are also the evidence of the physiologic changes that are occurring. The first one is tolerance, needing more of a drug over time to get the same effect or more potent forms of that drug to get the same effect or finding that your drug stops working. This is very, very common as people become addicted. And then also uh, the manifestations of physiologic withdrawal. There are classic physiologic withdrawal syndromes for different drugs, but the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and craving. Um, so those are those are the things to look for in terms of what's happening in the brain. You know, in the book, I use this extended metaphor of a balance and gremlins. Um, I talk about how our brains have evolved to process pleasure and pain, and that pleasure and pain are processed in the same parts of the brain and work like opposite sides of a balance, which is to say when we experience pleasure, it tips one way. When we experience pain, it tips the other. But the thing about the balance is that it wants to remain level or preserve what neuroscientists call homeostasis. And it will work very hard to do that. And the way the balance preserves homeostasis is first by tilting an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was. So I read a romance novel, my brain releases dopamine, that feels good, my balance tips to the side of pleasure, my brain responds by tilting that balance an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. I imagine that as these neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again, but they like it on the balance and so they stay on until it's tipped to the side of pain. That's that moment of the come down, the after effect, the longing to be in that state of fantasy, in my case, wanting to reach for another romance novel instead of going to sleep as I should do so I can get up in the morning and be fresh and go to work. If we continually expose our brains to these highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors, what happens is we end up accumulating enough neuroadaptation gremlins on the pain side of the balance to fill this whole room. And that's essentially when we move into the addicted brain. 
we've reset our pleasure pain set points. In other words, we're now in this dopamine deficit state. We've downregulated production of our own dopamine. Those gremlins are living on the pain side of balance. And now we need our drug not to get high, but just to restore homeostasis or a level balance and feel normal. And when we're not using, we're walking around depressed and irritable and generally unhappy. What are your thoughts on people being addicted to excitement or drama in just their general lives? Because that's something really resonated with me when I was reading this is I crave those kind of exciting moments where there's going to a music concert and it feels quite innocent in a way. But yet, if something gives you a high, whether it's as simple as going to a music concert, can we then inevitably expect a bit of a come down, even if it's not drug induced, it's just activity induced? Yeah, I mean, I think with any kind of high, you're going to get a come down because that's just the way that the brain restores equilibrium. It doesn't mean that you should never feel high. I mean, what would life be if we didn't have desire and if we didn't have these moments of euphoria? But it does mean that we have to be very careful and thoughtful about how often and how much we're reaching for it. And also to recognize the way in which technology has made these enhancing euphoric experiences so potent this kind of primitive wiring to approach pleasure and avoid pain using this homeostatic re-regulating mechanism of balance evolved for a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. It exists in the way it does to get us walking tens of kilometers to find food, clothing, shelter, and basically to survive subsistence living. Now, sitting on our couch with a single swipe of our finger, we can have you know, cocaine delivered like pizza to our doorsteps. So it's a very, very different environment and not one that we were evolutionarily adapted for. And as a result, we're really having to renegotiate with ourselves and the world around you know, what constitutes the good life and how we're gonna make it in this world. Do you think in some ways, the mental health crisis that we are seeing is actually a crisis of addiction to modern day living? That, that is the central hypothesis of Dopamine Nation. The, the rising rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide that we're seeing all over the world are very clearly correlated to wealth of nations. The richer the nation, the higher the rates of suicide, anxiety, depression, and overall despair, and the less happy people are. And if you take that epidemiologic data and you marry it to the neuroscience of how we process pleasure and pain. To me, it's very then logical to infer that both on an individual and a national level, we are in a dopamine deficit state, that we have so inundated our brains with these hyper-convenient feel-good substances and behaviors that our brains have had to compensate by downregulating our own dopamine production along with other feel-good hormones and neurotransmitters like serotonin, norepinephrine, our endocannabinoid system, our endo-opioid system, such that we're all in a semi-permanent state of withdrawal. And as a result, we're very, very unhappy. And the reason that that's you know, an important thing to recognize is because the intervention is different. You know, the intervention is not necessarily like loads of psychotherapy or psychotropic medications or reaching for things that make you feel safe and comfortable. The intervention may, in fact, be none of those things and, in some sense, opposite of those things. Well, as you suggest, abstinence 
let's take sugar, for example, it can just feel impossible to abstain from something that is on every street corner. Would you mind sharing some of the interventions that you recommend to your patients and what you share in the book to help with that month of abstinence? Yeah, sure. So the key here from a neurobiological perspective is to restore homeostasis or a level balance to get those neuroadaptation gremlins off the pain side of the balance so that the brain can go back to baseline levels of dopamine firing. And how do we do that? We have to give up our drug of choice for long enough for those neuroadaptation adaptation gremlins to hop off. And 30 days is, in my experience, the average amount of time it takes to really restore homeostasis. And that's sort of all comers, people with severe addiction, people with more mild addictions. Of course, it varies across different people. Younger people, brain, brains are more plastic. People with less exposure to a drug maybe need less time. Younger people, again, because of increased plasticity, maybe need less time. But in general, you have to kind of go the month to get past that withdrawal stage to come out the other side and feel better, but also realize the true impact of your drug use on your life. And that's a key piece of the the dopamine fast too, or the abstinence challenge. So super important to abstain for long enough to restore homeostasis. How do we do that? Self-finding strategies. Self-finding strategies are literal and metacognitive barriers that we put between ourselves and our drug of choice so that we can press the pause button between our desire to consume and our acting on that desire. And that's things like getting the drug out of the house, getting sugar out of your house, for example, just go with the sugar example. And then the key, you know, there there are many other barriers, affiliating or or self-finding strategies, trying to affiliate with other people who are doing the dopamine fast at the same time that you are. So you're not doing it alone, for example, making it a kind of a sacred event, giving it meaning beyond just helping yourself or changing your own brain, but maybe um, it having a deeper meaning attached to saving the planet or helping the environment or who knows what, you know, but giving it some, some deeper purpose or meaning. And then, of course, you know, the key is what to do after that dopamine fast, because usually people will want to go back to using in moderation. And self-finding is also important there, because then you can use things like chronological self-finding or categorical self-finding to say, well, I'm going to have sugar during these days of the week or during this time of the day, or um, I'm only going to have sugar in in a birthday cake, but not going to buy it in cookies for myself. So that there are all these kinds of barriers that you put in place. What are your thoughts about this idea that you can't erase a habit, but you can replace it? The, The problem with that is that if you're trying to give up sugar, and then you replace it with a Netflix, uh, you know, show that those are both things that press on the pleasure side of the balance. And then you're at risk for cross addiction, where you just you go from one addiction to the next. And you're also hypothetically not restoring homeostasis, right? Because at the end of the day, all reinforcing drugs and behaviors work on the same common pathway and they all release dopamine. And what you're trying to do is sort of cut off the dopamine pipeline mm-hmm. so that you get your body to start upregulating and making its own sort of feel good factories again. So in general, you know, that's not what this is about. It's not about stopping pot and starting alcohol or not eating a cookie and binging on Netflix. It's about really tolerating the discomfort and knowing that as you're doing the work of tolerating the discomfort of withdrawal, what you're actually doing is getting your body 
to upregulate its own feel-good hormones so that you will feel better in the long run, even if in the short run it's really hard. One thing that I particularly really enjoy about your work is how you are really passionate about educating people about the truth behind addictions. Because in current culture, I do think there is so many mixed messages. Uh, For example, sleeping pills. I would say half my friends are on them over half a week or maybe even every single night. I really just wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts on the long-term damage of sleeping pills in terms of the neurological impact of them? Yeah, so most sleeping pills, um, the ones that I think you're referring to are things like benzodiazepines, like Xanax, Valium, Ativan. Yeah. Also things like Ambien, which are benzodiazepine-like. All of these chemicals work on the GABA receptors in our brains. GABA is our inhibiting or calming neurotransmitter. And um, it's also the same receptor that alcohol acts on. Unfortunately, these substances are highly addictive and the brain goes through the same compensatory mechanism that I just described with the pleasure pain balance. Uh, You know, obviously they're not taking them for pleasure. They're taking them to solve the problem uh, of insomnia, but the result is the same with the neuroadaptation and the gremlins hopping on the, let's say, pain or insomnia side of the balance such that over time, um, the individual needs to continue to take those pills, not for their initial effect, but just to stave off a withdrawal, which in this case would be worsened insomnia. Because what happens is they'll say, well, if I don't take my sleeping pill, then I can't sleep. And so, so they have the sense that the pill is working, but really probably what's happening is that the pill is, is medicating the withdrawal from the last dose. And what they, they've forgotten that prior ever taking pills, they might have had some degree of insomnia, but objectively speaking, their insomnia might be no better or even worse now that they're on the pills. So there aren't too many major critical impacts of taking them, would you say? It doesn't change your ability to like regulate your emotions or anything like that. No, I mean, I would say that. I mean, if you become, if you're taking a daily benzodiazepine, first of all, you become physically dependent on it. That means it's probably not even doing what you originally hoped it would do. It's actually just keeping you from going into withdrawal. Plus, then people typically need more and more over time to get the same effect. The higher the dose, the greater the risk of things like addiction, but also cognitive decline, uh, fall risks. You certainly don't want to age into your 60s, 70s, and 80s dependent on benzodiazepines. Uh, your fall risk goes up, your risk of cognitive decline goes up. So again, these are medications that have been studied for short-term use. They've not been studied to be used over many weeks to months to years, and yet very often that is how people are taking them. That's really interesting because I feel like, you know, knowing the kind of long-term consequences is so helpful as a motivation to be able to start looking into some of the interventions that you mention in your book. And one of the interventions you talk about is Mm truth-telling. Why is telling the truth so important in the healing process from addiction? Yeah, well, so this gets into some, some of the kind of, you know, specific practices that people can do either as they're doing the 30-day fast or even after that. And radical truth-telling is telling the truth about things large and small. So not just about how we're using our drug of choice, but really about everything. And it's something that I learned from my patients in recovery. 
Uh, the ones in the most robust and sustained recovery had learned that they could never lie, not even about little things. Why? Because as soon as they did that, that would put them at risk for relapse. And so I got really curious, like, what is this thing about truth telling that that makes these individuals seem more resilient in the face of their, their addiction? I came up with a, num a number of different layers at which I believe it works. But um, first and foremost, I, I think what it does is it helps create real intimacy between ourselves and the people that we love. The other you know, important level on which it works is that it allows us to tell truthful autobiographical narratives. And the stories that we tell about our lives are fundamental, not just to organizing our past, but also to creating roadmaps toward our future. These autobiographical truthful narratives become very important ways of reminding ourselves of uh, you know, the pleasure pain balance and what works and doesn't in the long run. And is in fact how organizations like AA work. It actually becomes kind of like an extended hippocampus where it's a reminder. It's a reminder of those gremlins. As I said, you know, we are so lightly touching upon this excellent book that is so applicable to so many people experiencing so many different things. And when I started to understand the neuroscience, it again acts and serves as such strong motivation to be able to help you break your addictions when you have further education. Yeah, I mean, I think it really the, the goal of the book is to reframe pain, right? And to begin to think about pain as being something potentially salutary or healthy in our lives. And that not just our survival, but our flourishing has become contingent on us intentionally seeking out and inviting pain into our lives as an antidote to the plethora of pleasure uh, that now surrounds us. Would you say that is your number one tip in terms of how on earth do we survive a world that has been built to have us addicted? If you were going to talk to every 21-year-old leaving the world of education, what would your message be? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the core message is, you know, that the, the relentless pursuit of pleasure for its own sake leads to the inability to experience any pleasure at all. And this is a neurobiological, physiological uh, reaction. It's not a willpower problem or a social uh, mores problem or, or, or you know, a spiritual religious problem per se. This is science and basic physiology. And living in a world in which we're constantly surrounded by pleasure and insulated from pain in order to align with our nature, we have to eschew and avoid intoxicants and highly pleasurable stimuli, at least for too long or too much. And we have to invite challenging and literally painful experiences uh, into our lives, not to excess, but again, in moderation so that we can reset our reward pathways. Thank you so much. I will put links to Dr. Anna's books in the show notes. I greatly, greatly recommend you especially read Dopamine Nation because I think you'll find that it speaks to your life in more ways than you could possibly imagine. And Dr. Anna, where would be the best place for people to find you in case they want to follow your future work or be in touch in some way? Well, there is a, a website that was made for Dopamine Nation called dopaminenation.com. Also, um, that same link is onalemke.com, so that's probably a good, good place. 
Fab. We'll put those in the show notes for everyone to access. And that just leaves me to say thank you so much. Thank you, Poppy. Take good care. Thank you for listening. It would be a huge support if you wouldn't mind rating, subscribing and sharing this podcast. I also would love to hear from you. So please find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram, DM me and I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics that we discuss. Download Happy Not Perfect, my app that's designed to boost your mood and help you sleep and give you mindfulness in less than five minutes. It's packed full of science-backed tools and rituals to give your mind the care it needs. Sending lots of love and energy. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.